Okay, um, I like this part of the weekend very much. And um, one of the things you learn over the years is there isn't just one answer to these questions. So you're going to hear what Jack sees as the answer to the question today. And he may come back ten years from now and get the same question, give a different answer. And that's just the way life is. And if we don't get through all of them, if your question doesn't get answered, just uh, write it out on a piece of paper and give it to me and I'll, and with your address and I'll type up an answer and send it to you. So every question will get answered either now or later. And so we're going to start out, and I'm going to let Jack start out and select one of the questions out of here, and we'll just answer them as briefly and as clearly as we can. You got it, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for I'm Jack, out. and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jack. And I reached into the asket basket here, Sandy, and the uh, somebody who went to the Sunflower Roundup the 28th Sunflower Roundup in Kansas City, Kansas, wants to know, how do you speak slash talk about, quote, singleness of purpose, unquote, to the ANDA? Oh, you can answer that just as well as I can. Well, I know, but I thought you would read me the question the next time, so I thought I'd read oh, you okay. the question. <laughs> And then I'll be happy to amplify your answer. All right. <laughs> okay. This, the answer to that question is answered by our history. That it didn't take long for the um, Fellowship of AA to realize once they got going that these steps could solve any problem, any human problem. And uh, you could have eating problems, sex problems, gambling problems, you name it. And they said, wow, isn't that amazing how powerful these principles are? Maybe we should just open the door and let anyone with a problem in. And when they thought about it, somebody who throws up their food every day in order to stay thin, trying to help a gambler, might not work. And they decided that they would just solve one problem, and that was alcoholism. And they would give the steps to everybody else. Because if they didn't do that, they would dilute the identification of one person to another because someone who drank a lot cannot connect to somebody with needles they just aren't the same story and the person the new person just isn't going to connect powerful enough to turn their life over to this person unless they feel he completely understands them and so that's why we limit it to just alcohol and there weren't any problems till the treatment centers came along and tried to tell everybody that everything's the same. 
And it would greatly dilute AA. And so when I sponsor people, I just say, just drop the ANDA, and you're suddenly going to feel like you're a real member of AA. And they all do. Thanks. The uh, no, I'm going to share as Jack sees it. <laughs> We're going to just each answer one question. Oh, well, I, let me answer this one then. All right. I didn't know you were going to answer one question, but I, I know you tried to explain it to me. Okay. But I didn't hear what you said. I heard what I wanted to hear. I think the difficulty associated with Andas is that somebody gets taught this somewhere along the line. Uh, I don't know that anybody just starts being an alcoholic Anda. And so it's the lack of understanding that this is a spiritual solution to a spiritual malady. And should there be an ANDA, um, I try to talk to the person privately and suggest that whenever we add ANDA, we put a spiritual barrier between myself and the rest of the room or the rest of the people. Now, I don't understand how that works. I just know it does work. And I think everybody in here knows that's the way it works. Because when I'm alcoholic and a drug addict and a chalkaholic and a sex addict and a Democrat and a Vietnam vet, with each statement, I am farther and further and further away from the program of recovery. So it's a spiritual program. And I just need to suit up and show up and be a alcoholic. Thanks okay, for letting thanks. me share that. Why isn't every Thatcher considered a founder of AA? I guess you could if you want to in your mind. It's just that the rest of the people don't agree. <laughs> your turn. Okay. <laughs> How do we reconcile, simply allow everything to be as it is, with the reality of suffering, like a child being raped and murdered, or physical suffering from a disease? Lack of power is my dilemma. I wish I had the power. I wish I could make all unpleasant things pleasant. But I had to learn here that I'm powerless. I'm not only powerless over alcohol. I can't make anybody sober and I can't make anybody drunk. I just don't have the power. It's my understanding that life happens. And part of life includes suffering. And I cannot explain, nor does anybody else I know have the capacity to explain why suffering happens. But if it weren't for the bad times, I wouldn't be able to recognize the good times. And um, I mentioned last night, I think it will be 11 days from today, is the 21st anniversary of my being blown up. It didn't seem like a good day at the time. 
but it turns out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. So I'm not sure about suffering. I'm not sure why it happens, but it happens for a reason. And it's the way it is supposed to be right here, right now. Thank you. Good job, Jack. Is it possible to spiritually outgrow your sponsor? If so, how do you know and what do you do? I guess that's, um, that's, of course it's possible. I mean, that's like five people taking piano lessons and one gets them, becomes a virtuoso and the other one isn't or you get smarter than your father or, or whatever. But that doesn't mean that they can't still be your sponsor. It doesn't mean you can't continue to respect them. You can't. I think that I went off into areas that my sponsor didn't choose to seek out. But he remained my sponsor and was my primary backup. But I began to seek also people who were familiar with the areas that I was interested in, and they became friends or sounding boards and so on down. Um, you got to be careful because we realize that we're judging ourselves to be somewhere. And so it's a slippery slope, and I would ask some other people, see if they agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) And then just see what you think after what they say. But yes, I would say it is, of course. Thank you. All right, the big book says we are rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence. Can you please explain exactly what is meant by that? And what are the first, second, and third dimensions? (laughs) And are they spelled out in the book? And if so, where? I never thought you'd get my question. <clears throat> I was at a meeting one night and a fellow indicated that he had been rocketed into the fifth dimension of existence. And I felt compelled to explain that that was a singing group and not a destination. I have uh, come to understand that the fourth dimension of existence is the spiritual realm, uh, which the tenth step says I have entered, uh, unbeknownst to me, having taken action on the steps preceding, not completed the action, just taken action. And I think the uh, first, second, and third dimensions are found on page 76. But you might be wrong. I could be wrong. Yes, I could be. (laughs) Don't mess my hair up, okay? That was was wonderful. (coughs) 
Okay, if God is everything, what is ego? Is ego God given or a distortion of perception or something else? (laughs) Well, the way we use ego, the way I use it is, it is a story maker-upper. And, of course, God created story maker-uppers. Um... It's definitely, as we recover, we realize that the perception was completely distorted and um, very painful. And as we destroy it and allow a new perception to come in, we start getting a glimpse of why God is everything. Until you do that, it's just a theory, and we're left with our own judgment and perception about everything. So it's a blessing to get out of there because it looks perfectly real. Thanks. All right. In the foreword to the 12 and 12 on page 15, it states, AA's 12 steps are a group of principles spiritual in their nature. Unquote. Nowhere does it state in the big book or 12 and 12 what those principles are and how they correspond to each step. I've read a couple different versions of what each principle to each step is. And there are differences. What is your opinion on experience with regard to this? Well, any question that asks my opinion is one of my favorite questions. In the, uh, I think it's uh, in the big book in um, the second chapter, it says that the problem for the alcoholic centers in the mind. I think this question is an example of that. (laughs) Simply how I think is my problem. S-H-I-T. And I don't mean to make light of the question. I'm not making light of the question. But Alcoholics Anonymous really doesn't care what I think. What Alcoholics Anonymous calls upon me to do is to take action. And with the action, I gain the experience. And with the experience, I come to an understanding of what it is that they're talking about. I'm really, it's none of my business what Hazelton thinks of this, or Betty Ford, or Father Martin. Alcoholics Anonymous, contained in the big book, the program of recovery contained in the big book, is what works for alcoholics. I'm alcoholic. Left to my own devices, I'll think my way right out of this program. So I can't answer the question. All I know is I've got a better way of life today than I've ever had before in my entire history. So I think I'll stop doing it. That's my best thinking. Thank you. I can't answer it either. 
Sandy, when we detach ourselves from our own lives, allowing God to be in charge, letting go of the world around us, others in society around us have a tendency to say we are selfish, even self-centered. How would you reply? I wouldn't. Thank you. (laughs) I wouldn't say anything to him. People that are centered on God are going to cause other people to be uncomfortable, and it's going to appear that we're not being treated fairly. What have been some of your aha moments in your spiritual growth? The... um, the most, I think one of the best things about getting together and sharing our stories is we share with each other those things that have happened in our lives which cannot be explained, which I call God shots. And I was, uh, I think we were speaking uh, before, uh, earlier this morning at the house. As many of you know, I used to be a circuit court judge, and uh, I sent a lot of people to prison, and we've got a prison in Hagerstown, and we were at uh, Founders Day, and if you've been to Founders Day and you've gotten the package, you eat in the dining hall, and you sit where they tell you to sit, and uh, you live in the dormitory, and uh, every meal, you go through the buffet and you sit where they tell you to sit, and every meal somebody new sits across from you. And so I'd had that experience for those three days on Saturday. Now it's Sunday, and I went down to the the dorm uh, head to shower up, and a guy comes in, and he says, Hi, my name's Woody. I'm from Baltimore. And I said, I'm Jack from Hagerstown. He said, ah, I come to Hagerstown all the time. I said, What do you come up there for, Woody? I figure he's a truck driver or something. He says, "I, Me and my sponsor, we bring a meeting to that prison in Hagerstown every month. I said, Woody, I'm embarrassed to talk to you because I live 10 miles from that prison and I don't know a single person who takes a meeting in there. And he said, well, would you like to go with us? (laughs) I'd really like to talk to you about that, Woody, but uh, i got to get back to my room. My man Glenn's waiting for me back there, so we'll talk about this later. And I went back to the room, and I told Glenn what had happened. He said, Jack, did you give him your telephone number? I said, oh, no. He said, Jack, there are 15,000 people here this weekend. He said, he will never find you. And I took comfort in that. (laughs) So we went over to the dining hall and went through the buffet line. And got my tray of food, and now they're telling me where to sit. Every seat, every seat, every seat, every seat. Sit down here, Jack. I sit down. Every seat, every seat, every seat. Now they're coming down the other side, and I wonder who's going to sit across from me. Woody. Now, the last thing I want to do as a retired circuit court judge is to take meetings into prisons. But what are the odds of Woody sitting directly across from me? That's a God shot. And even a knucklehead like me can recognize God moving in my life. But I gotta be open. I gotta be willing. 
And I started taking meetings into prisons, and it's been the best thing I've ever done, or one of the best things I've ever done. And if you ever get invited to take a meeting into a jail or a prison, my my encouragement is go and let God operate in your life, because they wouldn't invite you if God didn't intend for you to go. Great, Jack. Thank you. Most alcoholics grew up in an alcoholic home. Does AA help them with their alcoholic relatives, or should they be in Al-Anon? What's the difference between AA and Al-Anon if we follow the same steps and traditions? Well, we have a thing in AA that we have a common problem and a common solution. And our common problem is different than the Al-Anon's common problem, which is living with an alcoholic instead of being an alcoholic. So they hold the perspective so that the process of identification is one person who's going crazy living in an alcoholic family with another person who's going crazy in an alcoholic family sharing how the steps can lift you up so that it won't even matter if the alcoholic doesn't get sober. That's one of the powerful things of AA, of Al-Anon, is that they talk about this is not going to cause your husband to get sober, but it's going to cause you peace of mind no matter what he does. That's a pretty powerful thing. Thank you. What do you think this says? In self-forgetting, I find... In self-forgetting, I find, what does it mean? Oh, use this as a quote and then ask the question down below. Okay. In well, self... It was misleading. Huh? In self-forgetting, I find, what does it mean or how? Selfishness and self-centeredness is going to kill me. It's going to take me to my grave. Unless I stop drinking... And start changing. And start changing is the deal. And it's, it's not that I think any less of myself. But I think about myself less. That is the... I think that four-step thing that is suggested to us in the tenth step is to get God into the game early on when resentment or anger or fear show up. Talk to somebody about it, i.e. call my sponsor. Make amends quickly. And resolutely turn my attention to what I can do to help somebody else. I don't know about you, but that is against my nature. I believe I've heard our uh, speaker say that when he first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, he was a little Johnny One Note. Do re me 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 me. I forgot that. And I was a little Johnny One Note. I identify with that. Me 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 me. And I find in Alcoholics Anonymous that this is a program that teaches me to be selfless, to think about myself less, and to think about what I can do to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and my fellow man. And as a result of that, by just the practice of those new habits, 
self-forgetting. I forget about myself. Selfishness and self-centeredness slip away. Thanks, Jay. Uh-oh, this looks like a volume. Hmm. Oh, I'll be back. <laughs> I believe that AA is a part of a destiny champing awakening human potential, or changing awakening human potential for good. We function for the most part below the radar. Consistent with our principles of anonymity, is there a way to share the message with humanity generally that would awaken more people? Or do we rely on God to leak the good news and when others are ready? As I write this, I think I know the answer to my own question. Okay, but um, I think we all think that. And I think they thought that in the beginning when they said we could help every single human being who is lost, desperate, restless, irritable, discontent. But look how they help alcoholics by a program of attraction. You don't see your home group advertising on television. You don't see that you get a celebrity from your own group to say, I'm sober, come on in. And um, Bill wanted to promote this thing. We got to get the millions all over the world. He was, even as he was dying, he was going, we got to get all of them. And uh, God said, "We'll get there, but not at your pace. It'll be at my pace. One drunk talking to another." And so we've all felt this, but you can't do any better than helping the next person. And if you've ever been to uh, Omaha. And Peggy Martin, whenever she talks, if, have you all seen this? And she says, before I get started, I'd like the women I sponsor to stand up. You've seen it, Jack. And so they stand up. There's quite a few girls. And then she said, now I'd like all the people that they sponsor to stand up. And then I'd like all the people that they sponsor. <laughs> Jeez, it looks like the whole room stands up. One person. So it's, it's getting there. Just not the way we would do it. Thanks. Bill W. wrote, in As Bill Sees It, on page 264, The steps can keep most of us sober and somehow functioning. But step 11 can keep us growing if we try hard and work at it continually. End quote. This has been my experience. My ego will want others to see and understand this because it was so helpful to me. How do we convey the importance of step 11? Keeping in mind live and let live and our singleness of purpose. The... Step that's addressed in this question is step 11. And that step says that I am to seek. Seek, I think that was a word that was mentioned earlier about becoming a seeker. God couldn't would if he were sought. 
I remember hearing a speaker who I admire used to talk about playing hide-and-seek. <laughs> How much time was spent playing hide-and-seek? Well, we would spend hours playing hide-and-seek. My sponsor used to ask me if I spent uh, more than an afternoon at the Broad Axe drinking. I said, well, yeah, I've gone there many times at noon. What time did you come out? I came out at 1 a.m. Oh, you spent 13 hours drinking. Yeah. Have you ever spent 13 straight hours seeking God through prayer and meditation, praying only for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out? Well, the answer is no. I've never done that for 12 straight hours consciously. But I've come to understand that this whole program is a prayer, and this is God's solution for the alcoholic. God has other solutions for other people in the universe. It's none of my business what God's will is for them. What is my business is what is God's will for Jack. And I've come to understand that when I take the inventory process and weave it together with prayer and meditation, I'm given an unshakable foundation for daily life. And given the life that I used to live... People just in observing the way I live my life today know that something's changed. And live and let live, I can't change anybody else, but I can sure work on changing me. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. Good man. Oh, here's an easy one, little. Yeah, both sides. Here's a similar thing. I feel like I'm growing an AA program more than my sponsor. He has a very laid-back style, and I don't feel like I'm not working the steps very... Like I'm not working steps very thoroughly, maybe he isn't. Is it time to find a new sponsor? And if so, how do I tell him? Well, I'm not a very good one to answer this because I've had the same sponsor for 42 years. And um, I, myself, when I came in, you didn't select your sponsor. He came to your house, and it was a done deal. So I just thought it was for life. So the thought of changing never occurred to me. But today's a different world, and you made the decision in the first place. And I don't know how to handle that. I don't know what you do when you go, well, I don't know if this decision was good. Because I never had to wrestle with that. It was done. And you just didn't question it. And as I said earlier, I got um, other advisors. And I continue to have. I have four or five advisors that I run stuff by on a regular basis. And uh, I use any, I'll call Jack or I'll call Tom Meyer. If I'm sponsoring somebody and uh, I don't know how to handle it. I've never had anybody with this. I call around the country till I find somebody who, who did handle it. And then I come back and pass on the thing, but I don't tell them I didn't think it up. <laughs> I'm not that humble. Keep working. Um, I am a producer of musicals. They need to be planned in advance. It is a process. I deal with musicians, 
technical lighting and sound people, etc. Thinking about the past and the future. Am I spending my professional life in conflict with the present, the now, God? No. <laughs> That's a hard one, I'll admit. Okay, I'm a trial lawyer. I'm going to make a bad situation better on Wednesday, but this is Saturday, and I'm not thinking about it. And I'll do the best I can. And I'll try to arrange the opening statement, the questions for the witnesses. I'll try to anticipate the answers. I'll have a closing argument outlined. And my defendant will probably plead guilty. Am I wasting my time? No, I'm doing my job. I'm doing the best I can to get it all organized. But the outcome, not up to me. I was talking with somebody earlier today that um, there's that guy down in Houston, uh, Joel Olstein. Joel wrote himself a book. Many of you may have it, read it. Uh, Your Best Life Now. Uh, you mentioned uh, Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now. We got a book. There is one that has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. They're taking our stuff and selling it back to us for $28 a book. <laughs> We got the answers. How am I doing now? Right here, right now. Things seem to be okay. Organizing activities, workday activities, I take on responsibilities, I discharge responsibilities. I'm doing much better today than I'm not drinking. <sighs> Isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing? Thank you. Thanks, Jack. And I was just thinking, I, they still have flops, don't they? Okay. Musicals? Yeah. No. Um, a spiritual teacher once said, 99 cents does not make a dollar in regards to self-realization, God-realization. It happens all at once and spontaneously. You cannot meditate your way to enlightenment. In AA, we see Bill's sudden awakening, but our are also told many of us have more gradual awakenings. Is it possible to make progress towards awakening? Is awakening a progress? Progress, not perfection. Let's look at what um, William James would call the educational variety so that you don't come in here and you say to God, God, please help me. I want to da, 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 boom, the lights go on and all of that. So let's look at the um, experience of the gradual, okay? I think we find it after we do the ninth step. That's a long process. We have been one step at a time chugging along. And then it says we suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So even the gradual one happens suddenly. It happens in that instant when you have a singular moment only 
it wasn't like bills where you're lying there. You're just doing this work. You're not focusing on trying to have one of these. And it happens. And But it does happen suddenly. I, I think everybody's is sudden. So that's all I'll say on that. As the spiritual life is sought through awakening, how does the life of service work change? Is there profound change in service to others as we seek God more closely? And are service and seeking inexorably interwoven? Well, certainly uh, service uh, work is an important part of Alcoholics Anonymous. But service work, as I understand it, is seeking and doing God's will in my life as it relates to this program of recovery. And uh, it may well be that whatever it is that God wills for you will be entirely different than what God wills for me. It just strikes me that what we're all called upon to do is to be of service. And that can be setting up chairs, making coffee, sponsoring somebody, being a GSR or DCM or a delegate. There are lots and lots of different ways to be of service in terms of the recovering community. But it's different for each and every one of us. God's will is not the same for all of us as I understand it. And my experience, at least in Alcoholics Anonymous, has been that step 10 calls upon me to grow in effectiveness and to grow in understanding by applying these principles to my life on a daily basis. And my experience has been to the extent that I try to do that, things go pretty well. And to the extent that I don't do that, things don't go so good. And so for the alcoholic, uh, suiting up and showing up and doing the deal is what it's all about. And not quantifying or qualifying the quality or the value. I don't need to know because it's, it's, it's a God deal. God knows why he has me doing what I do. I have no idea. And every now and then, God will do a bank shot just to show off, to let me know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, even though I think that this is a total waste of time. And so I don't have to examine it and quantify it or qualify it. I just need to suit up and show up. Thanks, Jack. All right, let's do uh, I'll do one, you do one, I'll do one, and we'll quit. I mean, we'll take a break. Okay. When I came to AA, I was self-righteously contemptuous of religious religions then, like you talk about. I encountered God as you experience him. I try to be open-minded, and I am about most beliefs, but I have a knee-jerk negative reaction about Christianity. I'm uncomfortable about this. Any suggestions? Well, this is a heck of a beginning for you to put this question out and to just open it out indicating you would like to get rid of this painful belief that you have. I mean, you can't make a better beginning than to do that. We want to get rid of this opinion that we have because it's causing us to suffer. 
And um, I think society is pushing us in this direction. There's, there's just forces that seem to want to pick on this. And I've started to comment on that, that you can mention any higher power you want in AA. You can mention John Wayne. You can mention your home group. You can mention my higher power is the whole spirit of the universe. My higher power is Muhammad. My higher power is this. You say your higher power is Jesus, somebody's going to call you on it. We seem to have singled that one higher power out for a negative blast in the middle of our fellowship. And we all need to um, take a look at that. Um, because there's a lot of people's souls are offended and they, they, they stay quiet at meetings when this criticism is going on, but they're being deeply hurt by such comments. So this is a wonderful thing for all of us to inventory. What prejudice do we have left and get rid of them because no one, I'll tell you this, no one wants to listen to an angry person. So when you're trying to sponsor or do anything, if you're an angry person, your message just gets wiped out by the, by the, by the, by the anger. So there we go. If you take no causes or sides... How will the innocent be protected? I am an alcoholic. (laughs) And I suffer from a uh, spiritual malady. And up until 1935, there was no hope for me. I mean, in all of recorded history, there's never, ever been an answer for an alcoholic. And the innocent have suffered the entire time. And then on June the 10th, 1935, that spark was struck in Akron, and and there was hope for the alcoholic. And I've got a book that says that My purpose in being is to fit myself, to equip myself, to be of maximum service to God and to others. That may or may not include protecting the innocent because I don't know what God's will is for me in that regard. But I do know that I've been given the opportunity, I've been given a gift by God to affect the life of another alcoholic in a way no other person can. And I think I'm called upon to the very best of my ability to keep my focus on what I can do to help another alcoholic. So that we, we, all of us, we, can do what I was totally incapable of doing by myself. And the innocent will continue to suffer. Okay. We'll wrap it up with this. We'll take a 10, 15-minute break, okay? Can you tell us about the Marines and the outhouse?
which is these photographs, if you haven't seen. There's a bunch of Marines sitting around a table with a miniature outhouse, and then there's one with me standing in front of them. That's you? That's me. Ooh. I'm so sorry. All right, so... Uh, this was in 1963, and I ended up in a MAVS outfit in Iwakuni, Japan, and the, that's a squadron that has no airplanes. <laughs> it's a base squadron. It takes care of all the housekeeping, the group guard, the building the explosive ordnance and the chemical weapons, and I had the air traffic control and the motor transport, supply, you name it. It's all the housekeeping. So when the squadrons go to happy hour, all the fighter squadrons and the attack squadrons, they got big models of their airplane on the tables. And then they're all getting drunk around the symbol of their squadron. And we had no symbol. (laughs) (laughs) And we had the most creative guy, Jack Perrin. He was a captain. He was the executive officer. And he built that miniature, we called it a... S house, and uh, it was a perfect replica of a one holer. It had a toilet, had the seat, it had a little tiny roll of toilet paper. It was just <laughs> perfectly because he ran the carpentry shop. So we put it on the table, and uh, that was our symbol. And so when the pilots from the fighter squadron would come over and say, "What the hell is that?" and I said, "That's our symbol. Look at it. look at the workmanship. Look inside." <laughs> And when they looked inside, there was a sign that said, you will buy a round of drinks quietly. (laughs) (laughs) And they would all sing, you're in the shit house now, you're in the shit house now. And then we told that guy, now you can sign it. And if you get somebody to look in there, you'll get a free drink. So he'd go get one of his buddies. Hey, you ought to see that damn thing those guys got. <laughs> when we left Iwakuni, there was no room for signatures. <laughs> and it was famous. So this same guy, this leads into the most classic military story I've ever heard. This same guy talked our colonel into writing to the group CEO telling him that we had been notified by the Commandant of the Marine Corps that we were going to get an airplane. And what would our call sign be and the frequency? And so the uh, group CO to play along wrote back, when your plane arrives, you can call it Wormwood 1. That was the call sign, Wormwood. Little did anyone know, but this captain was building an airplane out in the carpenter shop out of um, wood and canvas, wheels from something. You had an old pump engine in there. They carved a propeller. From a distance, it looked like a real, maybe an observation plane or something. And one morning at about 6 a.m., they towed the plane out to the flight line (laughs) (laughs) with a radio jeep, and they called the tower, and the engine's running, and so at 6 in the morning, the tower hears, Iwakuni Tower, Wormwood 1, over. And, of course, there's no Wormwood. And they go, Wormwood 1, where are you? He says, I'm on the Ham's flight line. And they got the binoculars. <laughs> See a freaking plane over there with its engine going, which did not come aboard the base. 
in any official fashion. There's no record of Wormwood One. And they said, to, they said, well, what are your intentions? I'd like to taxi time in the altimeter. I want to go take off. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. So they sent the car over with the red lights to see what this was. And then we exposed it all, and everybody laughed, and the uh, military police called the tower, and the tower <laughs> laughed, and everybody had a big joke, and, boy, that was funny. So Wormwood got parked in front of our Quonset Hut headquarters, <clears throat> and we had Santa Claus in them, and it starts falling apart, and it's just, you'd think it was the end of Wormwood, <clears throat> until we got noticed that we were going to deploy to Taiwan for an exercise with the uh, Taiwanese Air Force. And this same captain goes to our colonel and says, well, let's write a letter to the group CO and find out what flight Wormwood is flying over in so that we know when to leave and go to Taiwan. <laughs> and the group CO writes back and says, Wormwood will fly over with the photo planes because they're all playing a joke. I mean, they're just going along. Freaking Jack Perrin, he cuts the wings off the plane pulls them up on the side, ties it all together, and with no authorization takes it down to the transport planes that are hauling all the supplies over there. And it's not on the manifest. And they're going, what is this? Well, it's the, the group CEO. It's his observation plane. for government. And, the, and real pilots looked at that thing and went, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So we get we went there two weeks early to build the camp, build all the shit houses, the showers, the mess halls, the tents, and everything, and the radar. So the group CO leads the flight over when all the planes are coming. He lands and he looks, and the first thing he sees sitting on the flight line is wormwood, and he know he knew it didn't fly over, <laughs> and he was furious. <laughs> And he found Jack Perrin, and he said, burn it, and turned around and left. That was the end. Just burn it. And that's not the end of Wormwood, because <laughs> Jack Perrin went over to the Chinese general, who was in charge of the Air Force Academy and the exercises, and he requested an appointment. And the general let him in. And uh, he said, sir... I'm here to make a present to you of a special gift that MAG-12 constructed for you. It's a composite of all the prop planes that flew in World War II in support of China and Chiang Kai-shek. And, and the general almost had tears. He thought, he thought it was so wonderful. And he said, well, we're going to have to have a ceremony to accept the <laughs> So Jack went back to the colonel and says, you don't want me to burn that Chinese general's airplane, do you? And, and he said, what, what? And he said, yeah, he thinks you're a hero. We had a military ceremony. <laughs> and they brought their little tractor thing over, and they're playing... The music, the bugles and drums and wormwood is being towed off. <laughs> and two weeks later, somebody came down and said, you won't believe it. You go up to the courtyard of the Air Force Academy. We went in there. I'd, we'd never been in there. And in this courtyard, there were two pedestals 
and on one of them was a MiG-15 that had defected from mainland China, and on the other one was Wormwood. (laughs) With a plaque under it that we couldn't read. (laughs) And eight years later, somebody we knew was over there, and it was still there. It was falling apart, but it was still there. And um, probably in the 70s, somebody in DCAA, I was telling him the story, and he said, geez, you had to put that in Reader's Digest. And he said, by the way, I just sold my house to the guy who used to be the commandant of that. He's the Chinese, um, Taiwanese air attache to the United States. So we went and met him. And we described this, and he says, well, there's two planes there. I'll just call them and tell them to take pictures and send them over, and it wasn't Wormwood. I think Wormwood finally fell apart, so that's the background on that. So let's take a 15-minute break, and we'll come back. Is that a story? You ever heard one like that? Okay, everybody, this will be the final session before we start the uh, silence. And so um, when we get near the – whenever we run out of energy here – We'll just stop, and as I said, if your question didn't get answered, just write it out and give it to me with your address, and I'll type up an answer. And um, so we're just going to pick up, and let's see, you started last time, so I'll start this time. Seems fair. Fair enough. I have seen stats from GSO on the current demographics of AA. An interesting fact is there is a sharp decline in membership participation between the five and ten year mark. As that is where I'm headed, please share your experiences in that part of your journey. Uh, the numbers less than one year. 31, 1 to 5, 24, 6 to 10. I don't know what those really mean. Um, I've never seen any numbers like this in my own experience. So I I don't know what I can really say except to say... um, My experience between five and ten years was that AA got more exciting and more exciting and more exciting. And it became less likely that I would ever leave. That's what it felt like to me. Um, But I do know people who got older and they retired and they stayed sober by just going to church and um, went on about their lives and... On the one hand, you can't call it a failure, and, but from my point of view, it's hard to find new alcoholics in churches to help. And so we, we lose out on that part of it, being able to carry on the message. But I'm not, I'm so sorry, but I don't know these numbers well enough to really make a good comment. So maybe somebody after the meeting can shed some light. Okay? Sorry. You have said, and I agree, (laughs) that we are not in control and that our life will happen 
whether we control it or not. But don't we have some responsibilities? For example, don't I need to go to a certain number of meetings to not drink? Don't I have to do my work at work? Don't I try to act my way into right thinking with regards to my character defects? Isn't this, as Bill said, the proper use of the will? Have I no responsibility for the outcome in all of this? Where is the line? My understanding, and, and, you know, here again, it's just my understanding based upon my experience that I, I have to be an active participant in my own recovery. Recovery from alcoholism is not a spectator sport. However, because I am powerless and lack of power is my dilemma, I have to be taught how to have a contact with a power greater than myself which will solve my problems. I won't solve the problems. The power will solve the problems. And i got to be plugged in to the power. I've come to appreciate Alcoholics Anonymous as kind of like, you know, we talk about a kit of spiritual tools. The kit of spiritual tools that I've been given here are power tools. And they have to be plugged in. And so, you know, I have a responsibility. I've got a lot of responsibilities. That's one of the biggest problems with being a responsible member of Alcoholics Anonymous is there's too damn much responsibility associated with it. I'd much rather be irresponsible myself. But in recovery, I am not responsible for the outcome of anything. I'm just responsible for suiting up and showing up and doing the deal. We're here all the time. Plan the plan. Don't plan the results. My serenity is inversely proportional to my expectations. The higher my expectations, the lower my serenity. So I have to keep my magical magnifying mind off that stuff. Because there's something wrong with the way I think. I am wired up differently. I don't have to take responsibility for the outcome of anything. But I do have to take responsibility for taking the appropriate action. And God accepts responsibility for the outcome. I think most of the people here, if not all of the people here, have experienced that sometime in their life, uh, the strength of the program, and we say something like, if I wasn't a recovering member of Alcoholics Anonymous, if I didn't have this problem, I would not have been able to survive that, whatever that was. And that's a real clear indication to me of just how powerless I am and how powerful my God is. Thanks, Jack. Okay. (laughs) I love these. What is serenity? How about... I hate to steal an answer. You'll know it when you have it. 
if we asked in the room, we'd get five, at least five different definitions, you know, absence of conflict, et, et, et cetera. I would say it increases the closer you get to God, that it's, it's not a one definition, that it just keeps increasing. Um, and I suppose once you've let go of everything, that would be the only thing you would experience is just love and serenity. Very difficult to answer, but a good question. Thanks. How do I trust the thought of following my path? My plan got me here, but after many years, I am getting a new vision. Can I trust that? Well, there's another question on here also, which is, when you pray, what do you pray for or about? There's another question on here. Do you believe in being expectant? Um, I, I don't know about the author of this question, but my plan did not get me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I doubt very seriously if there's anybody here who got up on a Saturday morning and said, you know, my life is going good. I mean, the wife and I are getting along great. The kids respect me. I'm doing good at work. I think I'll join AA. That's not part of my experience. I mean, I got to Alcoholics Anonymous because it was the last house on the block. So I didn't have a plan to come here. And I didn't have a path. And uh, I'm seeking God's will for me. And I think each of us is instructed to try to seek God's will for me. And uh, I don't know what that is on a day-to-day basis. I just know I didn't die last night. And so I was given the gift of life again today, and that's why we call it the present. It says in the big book that, uh, you know, I'm to pray for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry it out. I think it also says that I really shouldn't pray or pray for, uh, for things for myself unless they would be helpful for other people. And uh, I used to say uh, at my home group that I was praying for a Cadillac so I could take people to meetings. And um, a guy remembered that and, and said that I used to pray for a Cadillac and to take people to meetings, and now i got a really nice Cadillac. So it worked out for me. And we laugh about that, but in point of fact, as long as I pray for things that would be of help to others, I can, be a, I can have a benefit also. And, uh, you know, what I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, is that, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, I, my, my serenity is inversely proportional to my expectations. So I try to just suit up and show up and, and be, be comforted by the knowledge that there is a God and he wants only the best for me. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Okay. What is your current perception of the disease of alcoholism? Is it a twofold disease with a spiritual solution, or is it a threefold disease, like we hear in meetings, physical, mental, and spiritual? Is there really anything spiritually broken in an alcoholic or just a disconnect? 
Oh, boy. It's hard to separate alcoholics from human beings. You know, we just happen to be hooked on alcohol. So human beings have the same problem when they're disconnected from God as alcoholics do. We're no different. It's exactly the same. A non-alcoholic who's separated from God is restless, irritable, discontent. The difference is that we were driven down to where we're going to do something about it. Because people don't do anything about things when they're mildly restless, irritable, and discontent, and lonely, and suicidal. you got to get to the extreme level. And that's why alcoholics are luckier than non-alcoholics. Because we're going to come back to our higher power, and a lot of people aren't. It's a, it's a great blessing. So, if that's the case, just uh, it's hard to call alcoholism bad, if you see what I mean, because it ends up being a blessing. It broke us. And um, so many people in AA say, I'm glad I'm an alcoholic because I never would have found my higher power unless I had been forced to. Now, dividing it up in twofold or threefold, I I never thought about it. Um, Not that it matters. Twofold with the disease, um, I've just never thought about it. Is there anything broken uh, in an alcoholic or just a disconnect? Disconnect. That's that's what I would say. It's absolutely it's a disconnect. We only there's only one problem being separated from God. So I would go along with the disconnect, but I don't know how to answer twofold, threefold. We we'll probably go down the room with threefold over here, twofold over there. Both sides are right. Okay. <laughs> All right, this uh, has got a heading, which is underscored, Forgiveness and Acceptance. You have talked about the importance of forgiveness, no matter how terrible the act. And you have mentioned that the sooner you are able to forgive the person, the more powerful it will be. Being an AA, I believe that forgiveness is very important. But just knowing that doesn't always make it happen. I have tried in some situations and have prayed, but still find myself holding on to the thoughts about the other person, replaying the wrongs which have been done to me. Is there some preparation which you have done before an act has taken place which has prepared you for these events when they take place. And are there more things which I can do at the moment which will help with the transition to forgiveness and acceptance? Um, When I was laying on the floor of my apartment and felt life draining out of me, and knowing that I was going to die on that floor and I was never going to see my wife or our three children again. 
and having done absolutely nothing in Alcoholics Anonymous except sit in a chair. The only tool I had to reach for was the serenity prayer. And I asked God to give me the serenity to accept this thing which I couldn't change and the courage to change what I could and the wisdom to know the difference. And I prayed that prayer and I prayed that prayer and I prayed that prayer and I prayed that prayer. And the prayer was answered and God came. Up until that moment, the serenity prayer was theory for me. And now it is part of my experience. And I have since had occasions to use the serenity prayer a lot of different places, including uh, cardiac intensive care at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and it works there. (laughs) It just works. And... um, I thought uh, that that getting blown up thing uh, was pretty bad. And my sponsor, Bob, thought it was pretty good. And uh, I thought Bob was crazy. But, you know, Bob explained to me that, it, that there is a great deal of comfort in knowing that I cannot be harmed. Because man had done his very best to try to kill me, and my survival was by the grace of God. So it was really good to have a sponsor. After the investigation began and the uh, folks were going out uh, knocking on doors and asking questions, uh, Bob and Ken said I had to forgive the person who had tried to kill me. I said, well, we don't know who it is. He said, that's all right. You still got to forgive them anyway. I said, I don't think so. And they said, well, you need to do that because otherwise he will win and you will lose. And it will eat you from the inside out. And so we began, Bob and Ken, helping me to pray for this poor person who felt they could improve their life by killing me. I thought it was silly. And it set me free. And... um, that's uh, Sandy has talked about uh, I, I, a uh, woman that he saw on television 25 years ago, whose son had been shot and killed, and they, you know, the TV people ran up and stuck a microphone under her in, in her face and said, "How do you feel about the person who killed your son?" And she said something to the effect that she forgave him because he was so far separated from God, and that. Um, I think uh, on another occasion I've heard you mention the Amish families up in Lancaster when their children were all killed at the school and that the families went to comfort the parents of the killer. Um, Had I not seen that kind of thing take place, I wouldn't think it was possible. And, of course, that's, that's why we get gather up together so that we can learn from each other and see I can get strength from watching what you do. That is in keeping with the principles of this program. Uh, Acceptance is uh, very, very important here. It doesn't mean approval. I don't approve of the guy who tried to kill me. I don't approve of his actions. But I accept them. And uh, I forgive him. And in so doing, I get to have a life, and he doesn't live rent-free in my head. Thank you. Good job, Jack. Wonderful.
Okay. What is a good gauge or measure of when we should check our perception of God's will in our lives with someone else? Always. That's, uh, I've learned, huh? Oh, it flipped over. Let me read the question again. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> what is a good gauge or measure of when we should check our perception of God's will in our lives with someone else. And I said, always. In other words, I've learned to, on a regular basis, run by friends. I don't need just one, just friends. This happened. I see it this way. Does that make sense that I see it this way? And then I get, I always get a clearer picture. It may be close to what I saw. And so I would encourage you to have a little circle of people that you run things by on a constant basis. Just you'd be amazed how humble it keeps you because you never are trying to be self-sufficient. That's the most dangerous thing we can do is to become self-sufficient. Thanks. I imagine that I've just about laid to rest one of my character defects when, quote, up jumps the devil, unquote, (laughs) and it returns full force. I'm glad he's not talking about lust. Um, Is this normal? Is there a quick answer to this problem? Is the problem in the assessment of my efforts or my expectations too high of my results. Um, I've come to understand and appreciate that the sixth step is an ongoing, lifelong process uh, of life. And uh, in that inventory process of the fourth step, I found that I was dishonest, and I'd like to be an honest person. I found that I was unfaithful, and I'd like to be a faithful person. I found that I was a liar, and I'd like to be a truthful person. I I found that I was, uh, I don't know if I said fearful or not, but I'd like to be less fearful. But those are things that are part of the human condition, I've come to understand. I just don't have rage like I used to have. I don't have paralyzing fear like I used to have. I don't steal like I used to, and I'm faithful to my wife where I was, used to not be so. I'd like to think that I've become the person of integrity that God created me to be, but there is work to be done. And what I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous, if I self-identify uh, one of these character defects, that uh, my self-identification is going to distract me from God's purpose for me. I mean, while I'm working on anger, uh, God may very well want me to be working on fear. So during my daily walk, different things present themselves at different times. I don't have the power to conquer any of these character defects. I do, however, have a set of instructions that tell me that when these things appear, I, I get God into the game at once. I ask God to take this thing from me. And I call Ken, my sponsor, or I call an understanding person, as has already been referred to, whose recovery uh, I respect. 
And if I haven't harmed anybody, then I don't have to make that uh, amends, but I do have to resolutely turn my attention to doing something for somebody else. And uh, I don't have to quantify, qualify, uh, submit for grading uh, the results. I just have to take the action, and, and God takes care of the rest. So I don't need to overthink this. I just need to be into action. Wonderful, Jack. Okay, we're down to the last two. We're going to finish. Um, it is, is it spiritually consistent to believe that in order to be of maximum service to God and one's fellow man, one should eat well and look and feel good? And I know that sounds like a surfacey question, but I think there's some validity to that. That um, showing respect to ourselves by taking care of this package that's been given to us. We lost a lot of people in the early days of AA, probably as many to smoking as we did to alcohol when all the meetings were smoking meetings. And you could say, well, smoking doesn't have anything to do with being spiritual. Yes, it does. It really does, because it lowers your opinion of yourself. And the purpose of spirituality is to see what a magnificent person you are. And so there's, I don't see anything wrong with um, treating oneself well, physical fitness, whatever it is, as part of spirituality. We don't officially do that in AA. It's not one of the steps, but you asked my opinion. And uh, I know that I, f- I just function better as a sponsor when I feel good, when I'm, I just have a good feeling about myself. I, I, I just function better. Last one, my dear friend. Well, how do you stay spiritually grounded in the hard times? It's easy when everything is going well. My definition of a good day is when everything goes my way. I think they wrote a song. zippity doo My oh my, what a wonderful day. I really don't need this program when everything's going my way. But I'm very familiar with uh, 911 prayers. I lifted up plenty of them before I got here. Uh, when I'm out of uh, ideas, I'll turn to the God idea by nature. In Hagerstown, we have a Class A baseball team. That's about as Bush League as you can get. And we have Bush League pinch hitters in Hagerstown. And I would no more call upon one of them to get me out of a scrape When I'm in a scrape, I want Jeter. That's who I want. I used to want Sammy Sosa, but not anymore. But the point is, I want the real deal. And um, what I found out in Alcoholics Anonymous is kind of like, i got to use the program full strength. Uh, It's a 12-step program. It's, It's not a cafeteria. 
Uh, it's not take what I want and leave the rest behind. In point of fact, it's take the stuff I don't want and apply it to my life because Alcoholics Anonymous encourages me and urges me to do stuff I don't want to do so I can get stuff I've never had. Uh, my definition of a bad day is when you don't do what I want you to do. Um, and then it just gets worse from there. So what I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous has already been referenced is lack of power is my dilemma. Of myself, I am nothing. If I suit up and show up and take these suggested steps, and I think that there's a bait and switch thing that goes on in the big book because when we get down to, I think it's step 11, it says if you have carefully followed directions, doesn't say anything about suggestions. They've switched it up to directions. But if I follow directions, I get what they promise me. I get a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. I get to help other alcoholics. Something that, is, that was denied to Mother Teresa has been denied to almost uh, to every clergy person I know, except for the alcoholic clergy people. It's been denied certainly to those who have prescription pads. Uh, the physicians and the caregivers, they do not have the gift that you and I have been given. And so when I turn my attention to what I can do to help other people, my day changes. I'm disappointed things didn't work out the way I wanted them to. But I've got a good life today. I'm sober today. On April the 7th, 1982, I was a hopeless, helpless alcoholic, and I didn't think so. I haven't had a drink since then. That's pretty sudden. Now, I didn't recognize it as being sudden. I didn't, I didn't plan on it being my last drink. It wasn't part of my plan. But it's pretty miraculous. And here we are on a Saturday afternoon in Florida all sitting upright, fully clothed, and in our right minds, and I don't think anybody's had projectile vomiting all day. (laughs) And that's nothing short of a major miracle. Thank you. Thank you. Let's give Jack a round of applause. for. I'm going to set up the silence. That was just delightful. Now you've cast me off. Okay. Uh, What we're going to do now, we're going to start three plus hours of silence. And a lot of you may have not done this before and approach it with some trepidation, but I, I just wish you could see how wonderful you're going to feel three hours from now. Keep close tabs of the different experiences you have when you're staying silent. And you're mixed, we're now going to mix with each other. We're going to end up sitting near each other at dinner. We're going to do this. Make eye contact, smile when you come by somebody on the way in. Pat them on the shoulder. Just keep, you will find out that you can continue to experience this spiritual growth in the silence. And so 
it isn't a question of surviving it. It's a question of observing it. This is the only way you can observe what it's like to be with a group of people and we're all going to stay silent. And then when you finish, you'll be able to discuss what it's like. So it's not like, well, I made it and that's all. So keep track in your mind. Watch. Well, I was nervous and then I felt this way and now I feel comfortable. Wow, this is it. Whatever it is, keep track of it and see what it's like. I think when it ends, you're going to be delighted that you participated. I've never had anybody say, well, I wish we didn't have that on the program. Right now you may think that way. (laughs) But I guarantee you, you're going to be amazed. And so, um, John, just go ahead and turn that off.